sights to show you. Welcome to the 27th episode of The Sirens of Scream, the geek podcast that proves sometimes dead is better. My name is Sierra Hauk, and I'm here with Melissa Megan. Hello. And Jackie DeVore. Hello. How are you guys doing? Wonderful. How about you? I'm excellent. Oh, I'm good. Work has been super crazy. We went to record this yesterday, and then I had to stay super late, so... (laughs) Luckily, I got out early today. I get stuck. I spent the whole day today on Hunter Mountain, which is in the Catskills. Oh, yeah. With a bunch of crazy four-year-olds and (laughs) swimming in a lake. And (laughs) my friends were camping for a week, and we decided to go spend the day visiting them at their campgrounds. That sounds fun. Was the weather nice? It was beautiful. It was like, I think it topped out at 80 degrees. Oh, that's perfect. It wasn't great like swimming weather, but it was beautiful like hang out in the mountain on a campsite nice. weather. It's yeah, been in nice. the 60s here and like raining for the last couple days. And everybody's complaining about it. And I'm like, it's wonderful. Don't <laughs> jinx it. <laughs> we had like huge storms yesterday and tornado warnings and hail. And oh, geez. yeah, it was insane from like 1.30 until midnight. So I was kind of nervous last night that I was going to lose power anyway. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Who wants to start with what horror things they've been loving this week? I can start. Okay, go for it. All right, I got a couple suggestions here. One of them is a podcast called Martinis and Murder, which I ended up listening to a bunch of last night when we didn't record. (laughs) So this is a true crime podcast, and it's pretty cool. They discuss a particular true crime event that happened, and they create a martini that goes along with it. That sounds so, amazing. Yeah, at the very beginning of the episode, they'll go through a recipe for a martini, and they have a, a little bartender there that will make them the martini, and they'll sit there and drink the martini while discussing this, like, serial killer or, you know, creepy break-in or, you know, things like that. So it's pretty interesting. It seems like it's being put on by the Oxygen Network, not, not like oh. the television network but like the website network (laughs) i don't know that part's a little vague yeah (laughs) they're sponsored by oxygen at the very least i wish we could get sponsorship like that (laughs) i know right and they're like like half as many episodes as us so i'm sitting there thinking dang how do they get the sponsorship but (laughs) this true crime is so hot right now yeah so yeah maybe we should talk to oxygen And become friends with these guys. But no, it, it is a pretty cool little podcast. It's a, it's a great idea. I definitely think you guys would love it in particular. And the other one I have is going to be a little weird. So bear mm-hmm. with me here. Uh, <laughs> there's a cemetery in Brooklyn called Greenwood. Greenwood Cemetery has been there for a couple hundred years. One day, this fellow, Jeremy Hammond, who is a cider maker that just happens to make cider in his free mm. time. Cider. Yeah, (laughs) he was walking through the cemetery and just happened to notice an apple on the ground in front of him. So he kind of traced the apple back to where it came from and noticed this massive, gorgeous apple tree right on the edge of the cemetery. He took a bite of the apple and it was uh, just bitter enough to spit it out, which apparently is the perfect apple for making cider. And of course, the cider maker just happens upon this particular apple tree. So naturally, he goes in. Yeah. <laughs> he, 
where she stole a couple apples and yeah, made like some cider that way. Yeah, and it turned out turned out so smooth and so perfect. He went and actually spoke to the owners of the cemetery to try to work out uh, getting apples from the cemetery to make small batch cider. Oh my god. These apple trees are basically fertilized and pollinated by things in the cemetery. I mean, the roots grow into these grapes that have been there for hundreds of years. Like, it's very bizarrely all woven together there, and they don't actually sell this cider anywhere. You can't, you can't buy it anywhere. The only way to actually taste the cider is to happen to go to one of the events that this particular Brooklyn Cemetery holds, where you walk around the cemetery and hear the story of some of the people buried there, some of the apple trees there, like it all comes together there and you're sitting there tasting the cider while you're hearing all this history. So Siren's road trip. Right. <laughs> Let's it's like all I, go to the cemetery. I, I stumbled on like several articles about this. I'm like, this is beyond cool. So yeah, that's metal yeah. as hell. That's so yeah. cool. <laughs> it sounds awesome. I like that weird. both of your recommendations were alcohol related as well. <laughs> <Yeah>. theme. <laughs> I didn't even realize that, but yeah. <laughs> I'm actually drinking local cider right now, but I don't think it's from the Brooklyn Cemetery. Uh. <laughs> mine is pretty quick. I can share mine. I want to talk about the Little Nightmares game. Jackie, I don't know if you've played this one yet. It's pretty new. Let me Not see. yet. Not yet. Yeah, it came out in April. So it's a puzzle platform horror game that is, it's sort of from the point of view of like a tiny little person, like a child in like a yellow raincoat. It sort of just looks like a, a child and like with like a, a pyramid head. Like so far I haven't seen the kid's face or anything. You just kind of Ugh. see like from the back of the head. So it's like a little, a little kid in a pyramid and you're running around inside this ship called the Maw and everything's really huge. So it's really interesting because the whole game is sort of from a child's point of view. So everything's from like at the ground looking up at big giant oversized world around you. And they kind of use common childhood references as subjects of, of creepiness and horror throughout the game. Like wandering into a, a child's room where there's like blocks and little seesaws and toys you have to kind of climb and make your way over. The scariest thing about this game that I've just started to kind of get into is there are these giant people on the ship who are chefs and they they capture kids and they seem to eat them. Ah, <laughs> like of course a, they do. A, yeah. A feast. <laughs> yeah. So the whole point of the game is trying to make your way through the ship while avoiding the sight of the chefs and not getting caught and destroyed by them. <laughs> There's also some other kind of like nasty little creatures that you meet along the way in the ship that you would imagine like little rodents and uh, there's some nasty kind of little wormy things that fall from the ceiling and like wrap around you like a snake. Mm -hmm. Fun. It's really, it's really creepy and it's really interesting because it has, the whole game has this very like childlike feeling about it between the point of view and it's not super dark right away like limbo you know it's got a little more color to it so it kind of feels like oh this is cute you know like i just go through this little door and i'm gonna like hop over these blocks and it also turns out that each room sort of has its own puzzle and the puzzles are continuously changing so it's really challenging it's really hard while i'm not a pc gamer normally i tried to play this at first on a keyboard i bought it i think on steam or 
GOG games. I can't remember where I got it. And I tried to play it on a keyboard first and it is impossible on a keyboard. <laughs> like impossible because it's it's one of those games that you have to like jump at just the right time, run at just the right pace. You know, you have to land at the door in the second that you need to run through it. You don't have any time to move slightly left or right. <laughs> and it just doesn't work with a keyboard. So I definitely recommend playing it on a console with a controller. And see, in in those particular cases, I would need to use a keyboard instead of a, a, a controller because I just I, I can't with controllers. I can't. This game, I don't think that even if you're good with a keyboard and I've read reviews that say the same thing. So I know it's not just me because I started getting upset. Like, why can't I do this? <laughs> it's not a matter of just getting the movements down perfectly. But this game expects you to do some kind of like finger yoga where you are pressing like <laughs> multiple keys at the same time and like Ugh. holding down and letting go of different keys at just the right second. I mean, I've only been through like the first couple, maybe, I don't know, maybe less than a third of the game so far. And like, I already got myself in a situation where, like, where am I, how am I possibly going to get my finger over there if I'm not an octopus <laughs> without letting go of these fingers? Like, it's just not possible. So yeah, I don't, I've read several reviews that have criticized the game saying that they actually didn't do like basic developer stuff to make sure that the game is, is able to Playable. be played in a reasonable way on a keyboard <laughs> huh yeah hmm. like it's a that it's a it's a slight you know it's a it's a flaw for the game but the game is beautiful the graphics are amazing and it's super creepy and i think it's going to be really challenging it's going to be the kind of game that i'm only going to be play for short periods and then get really frustrated and have to mm. step away i think <laughs> i've seen a video of the gameplay of this and it looks kind of like Coraline or like um James and the Giant Peach kind of feeling of that like uh -huh. stop motion-y storybook kind of feel. Oh, cool. It's really, really beautiful. It's and, really like, beautiful. Textures. Yeah. Even just the, like the intro, I think it's the first like high graphics game that I played on my new gaming computer. And when the, mm -hmm. the intro menu came up, I was just like, <gasps> oh. it's so pretty. <laughs> <laughs> it's so pretty. <laughs> That's the only one I'm going to talk about. I've been playing another game too, but it's not horror at all, so I'm not going to mention it on the show. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I have a board game that I want to talk about. I might have mentioned on the show before, but Betrayal at the House on the Hill is my all-time favorite board game ever. And it's it's about you are in a group of kind of the classic stereotypes of the scientists and like the young football player and the young reporter girl and the little girl and the little boy, you're all exploring this house piece by piece. And then as you're exploring it, you're uncovering these different haunts and clues and things. And then at a certain point, as you're like discovering things and rolling dice, you trigger an event where the betrayal happens. And whoever gets the betrayal, depending on what room they're in, it switches the game so that they become the villain. And every game you play is different because it just depends on when, when it happens and where it happens. And so it's super fun co-op and storytelling kind of game. And they've just announced this week that they're doing a Dungeons and Dragons themed version. Interesting. Um, called Betrayal at Baldur's Gate. Huh. And so it's not gonna be specifically horror, but if people are into board games, they should be getting excited about it because I'm super <laughs> excited about it. That sounds pretty cool. Yeah. A board game based on a board game. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, the mechanics are super fun because I don't like board games where it's just like so focused on competing with the other players and like 
you won't have fun if you don't win kind of thing. And this one is so so good at like telling a story and then also having everybody work together. And then even when you are the one person who becomes the villain, you have like your own set of rules and your own objectives. And so it's fun to like play against everybody, but still like kind of be in the same group. Nice. Yeah. So Betrayal at Baldur's Gate has been announced and I'm so excited. And then I also want to quickly mention a podcast that I've recommended in the past called Me and Paranormal You just came out with an episode today about alien abductions. So very similar to our last episode. And I listened to it today and it's very good. So I just wanted to mention that if anybody wants more alien abduction talk, they can check out Ryan Singer's Me and Paranormal You. Um, That's a really cute name. Yeah, Yeah. it's really fun. And then also this week, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't mention the fact that the Babadook has been getting popular again. Yeah. (laughs) uh, Because it's been adopted as a gay icon, I think specifically on Twitter. Can somebody explain this to me? Because I don't get it. Yes. Netflix (laughs) accidentally categorized the Babadook as an LGBT film. Oh. And Tumblr noticed it. Mm -hmm. I I don't think I need to explain any more from there. (laughs) <laughs> yeah it's just been wonderful to see the babadook with like all of the rainbows and everything yeah. coming up on my feet all week all of the queen costumes of babadook have been mm-hmm. incredible oh my god yeah who knew that like the crossover of people who have seen and loved the babadook movie and then who also like love gay pride is like such a just a perfect circle of a venn diagram right the crazy amount of creativity <laughs> that's come out of this it's it's been like inspiring at the very least it's awesome yeah but yeah i just wanted to mention it because it's so much fun <laughs> and I, i'm feeling like it's about time for me to rewatch the babadook it's been a minute yeah <laughs> i think it's a yearly watching kind of movie Hmm. yeah i agree I think that will wrap up our recommendations. Take a quick break right now and start talking about some of our favorite monsters. Michael Rennie was ill the day the earth stood still. But he told us where we stand. And Flash Gordon was there in silver underwear. Claude Rains was the invisible man. Then something went wrong For Fay Ray and King Kong They got caught in a cellular jam Then at a deadly pace It came from outer space And this is how the message ran Science fiction Earlier this month, a new Mummy movie came out, and it has not been doing well. Uh, It currently has 16% on Rotten Tomatoes. Oh my god, really? Um, Yeah, it's pretty pretty rough. That's brutal. And this is the very first of Universal Pictures' new Dark Universe, where they are planning on rebooting all of their classic movie monsters. Not a great start. (laughs) Not a good kickoff. The next one that they have planned is a Bride of Frankenstein movie. And then coming up after that, there's a Creature from the Black Lagoon, which will be super interesting to see how they make that fun, considering the fact that, like, the Creature from the Black Lagoon was never one that got remade a ton of times like the others. Yeah. But then after that, they're doing The Invisible Man, which is apparently supposed to star Johnny Depp, 
which I have feelings about because I'm mad yeah. at him forever. <laughs> and then a Van Helsing movie, a Wolfman movie, Frankenstein, Dracula, Phantom of the Opera, and Hunchback of Notre Dame. Oh, so they're going for it. They're super going for it. And it's a very rough start. <laughs> Ouch. Yeah, so I've, well, I've been feeling a little discouraged about it recently. See how far they get through that list, right? I know, right? I, I'm <laughs> excited to see if anybody's still interested once they get down to, like, Phantom of the Opera. Yeah, and what is this, like a 30-year plan here? Because they have uh, Bride of Frankenstein slated for 2019, and that's the only other one with a date on it. I'm guessing also. probably every other year. <laughs> Bride of Frankenstein is scheduled to come out on Valentine's Day. I kind of got to give him props for that. That's hilarious. <laughs> that is pretty clever. I hope they can stick to that. Yeah. But yeah, I guess just because everything has to be in a universe now, thanks to Marvel and Star Wars and all that, you know, it has to be a cinematic universe. Yeah. So this is their attempt at that. And I've been kind of grumpy about it recently <laughs> but of course these characters have been around for forever they've had their stories retold a billion times so it's not super surprising even though it hurts <laughs> <laughs> but i think that it would be fun for us to talk about our favorite versions of each of these classic movie monsters and kind of talk about what makes these characters so interesting and what we would like to see in these kinds of stories versus just explosions and Tom Cruise and <laughs> all that, which I think is pretty much all that the mummy had. Jackie, I know you wanted to talk about vampires. Yes. So let's okay. talk about vampires. Let's talk about some vampires. Okay, so when it comes to classic monsters, actually when going through this whole list, I noticed that I didn't really have a whole lot of favorites in the other categories. And I think it's maybe that I just kind of am drawn more toward like a general universe or general plot rather than the specific monster except when it comes to vampires i have always always loved vampires and i think it's because vampires always have this like kind of air of uh like a bad boy to them you know and they <laughs> they like have this air of like total badass like really strong danger thing going on there not just like this creepy monster you don't really understand you know but also sometimes mm -hmm. like dandy yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like high society kind of thrown in there too. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> but so with Dracula and vampires in general, there are some common themes and then some themes that like pop up here and there, but aren't super common. Like in terms of killing them, there are the myths of sunlight killing them, steaks, garlic, beheading them, all these things. But they really vary on what kind of story they're in. For instance, sunlight was actually introduced during Nosferatu. Mm -hmm. Like it, it never actually showed up in the vampire lore before that. It just showed up in Nosferatu. Or common themes like immortality and coffins are like pretty universal to pretty much all vampire stories, but like bats really aren't. Mm -hmm. The whole cape thing really isn't. You know, it, it really varies. A couple of things I did want to touch on. First of all, Sierra, a couple of your favorite vampires mm -hmm. are definitely worth mentioning first. Well, that's Vlad and Elizabeth. I was also going to say <laughs> Count Chocula is the, the vampire I get most excited to see. <laughs> I do love Count Chocula. He's definitely one of my faves. But yeah, Vlad the Impaler. When I went to Romania two years ago, I got to go to one of his camps, I guess. It was way up on the top of the hill, and 
you had to climb up a billion stairs, but it was basically like where he prisoned people and literally hung them up on stakes and impaled them, which was brutal to walk up all those stairs. And then, of course, when we got up there, we were greeted by this like dummy mannequin kind of uh, guy like on a stake. And it was all <laughs> worth it. Nice. <laughs> but yeah, Vlad was an inspiration for Dracula, um, as I'm sure everybody knows. I also went to Braun Castle, which was also the inspiration for Dracula. And that was fun. It was very touristy, which I was a little surprised by. The whole town was kind of had a bunch of little stands and things set up, so it was kind of very festival kind of feeling. But the the actual like architecture of the place was so beautiful, and of course there was hidden passageways and things that you could go up, which was super fun. But yeah, Vlad is. I'm surprised by how influential he has been to the vampire lore. But then there aren't so many stories directly about him and his conquest. Yeah, I think everybody kind of knows the name but doesn't necessarily know the person behind it as much yeah it's like his legacy his fictional legacy has overtaken his real legacy Mm -hmm, absolutely which i don't know how entertaining it would be to have a movie or a novelization of his life compared to something like dracula where it is a lot more mysterious and kind of shrouded in shadows and all that stuff that makes vampires so interesting and fun versus just like a very brutal kind of guy (laughs) (laughs) Um, who murders a lot of people. I mean, we do all watch Game of Thrones, so... That's true. It could do very well. (laughs) And then Elizabeth Bathory was a woman who was this queen who I think you maybe know a little bit more because you read about her recently, but... She was yeah. the, the queen who bathed, who supposedly bathed in virgin's blood. She was also a huge inspiration for vampires and especially like female vampire and what that means of like vampires kind of chasing this ideal beauty and immortality and links to like beauty as like youth and, and also just this really badass lady who is like brutal as hell. Yeah, I fell down a total rabbit hole with Elizabeth Bathory the other day. And she's, (laughs) I mean, being a lover of vampires, of course, she's like a a historical note that I've always kind of had in the back of my head there. But I just wanted a little refresher before this episode. And I got a little far into it. Like, (laughs) Like, I found out the other day that apparently she used to smear young girls with honey and then release a bunch of bees and ants. In their directions. Why? Yeah. Tenderize like, the meat? Yeah, well, just to torture them. Like, she just really loved torturing people, which is so huh. fucking insane. When she got married, and she was 15 years old when she got married, her husband... That'll mess up had, anybody. Yeah. Her <laughs> husband had to uh, build a very, very specific torture chamber to appease his wife. <laughs> and apparently, while he did partake in torturing and kidnapping and slaughtering young girls with his wife he was holding her back for many years because after he died she got so much worse like the only reason there was an investigation into her at all was because she started kidnapping noble women's daughters Mm, and like holding them ransom kind of well yeah she would hold them ransom or just straight up kill them murder yeah (laughs) yeah damn (laughs) so yeah she was interesting what do you give someone like that for a wedding gift I know, right? (laughs) (laughs) Really good knife set. Yeah, some like really heavy duty cleaner to get the blood stains out. One of those like, what do they call those like spiked masks that they put close people up in? 
<laughs> but yeah, she is, I feel like she's probably the first really influential character on the theme of immortality because she believed that the blood would keep her young and beautiful forever, which is a very common theme in vampire lore and something that really drives a lot of vampire stories. That actually kind of leads me into my one of my favorite vampire stories ever, which is The Historian. I don't know if you guys have ever read that. I think I may have brought it up on this on the show before. The Historian is it's a very beautiful, beautifully written novel about a vampire, and it's very similar in uh, tone to the original Bram Stoker's Dracula. It holds this idea that is my favorite, really, basis for a vampire that because they live so long and they're around for centuries, they not just study history, but they are the ones there to watch it unfold. So they are the keepers of all of those historical secrets. So in essence, they are the true historians, which I think is kind of fascinating, but I don't know that it's something that a lot of pe other people would find fascinating. Like it's, mm -hmm. I don't know, but I, I really love that idea of immortality, not just being this thing that humans kind of always want to chase, you know, humans always want to live forever and be young and beautiful forever, but to actually watch uh, civilizations build and fall throughout the ages as a vampire, that idea is a lot more appealing to me than just living forever, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. I feel like that's definitely how the like the Anne Rice vampire series approaches it. If yeah. you guys ever read the Anne, the vampire stories from Anne Rice, I read those when I was a teenager, I think, like when I moved out of my Stephen King <laughs> phase into Anne Rice. The, the whole kind of thing of like you have these different generations of vampires that come from different periods of time and like each of them has kind of seen a little more of history than the one before it. And mm. the older vampires, like where they where they fit and like how they exist in the modern world, is greatly affected by the things that they've seen through the ages mm. and kind of how they've decided to judge humanity through those things. Right. Yeah, kind of determines how they you know how they deal with the rest of the vampires and live in their little vampire communities. Yeah, and it affects the kind of esteem they hold with the other vampires. Like, oh, well, that guy was around for this. He saw this happen. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but other than that, my favorite portrayals of Dracula would actually be the one in the 90s, uh, Prom Stoker's Dracula with uh, Gary Oldham, who I, like, I totally fell in love with Gary Oldham as young Dracula <laughs> when I was a teenager. I just thought it was, I don't even know. I just loved it a lot. And Willem Dafoe in Shadow of a Vampire playing Max Shrek, who is just so incredibly creepy and so wonderfully bizarre. I have no idea how he he didn't win any awards for that movie. And I'm still pretty shocked by it. I didn't see Shadow of Vampire, but I love Gary Oldman's Dracula and Bram Stoker. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's incredible. Keanu Reeves is uh, interesting, but, you know, Gary Oldman mm -hmm. makes that film. Yeah. <laughs> how about you guys what are your favorite portrayals there one of my favorites is i love when people take kind of classic ideas of vampires or any of these monsters and play with them which you'll see in all of my favorites that i named are like weird interpretations of them mm -hmm. <laughs> one of them i really love is a comic book series that i've mentioned on the show before that i want us to cover at some point called american vampire by scott snyder and Raphael albuquerque that's the artist it's a great it, it kind of is based around like one particular vampire named Swisher Sweet who is uh 
he they they pick him up like in each story tells like his kind of events and his what he's doing in different time periods that he's living through so like one is based in like the old west one is based in like the 1920s they're they're all over the place um and it kind of follows like how he interacts with other vampires that come and go along the way and he's sort of known as like he's definitely known as like the bad like the bad kid (laughs) of the vampires he's always causing trouble and doing things that vampires aren't supposed to do and that's one of my favorites and also we have to mention what we do in the shadows Yes, please. Which is, like, I think <laughs> one of the best comedies of, like, the last 10 years. It's incredible. Yeah. Which we've talked about before on here, but just basic synopsis is a mockumentary about a bunch of vampires who are roommates. And each of the vampires was became a vampire in a different era and time. So they all have their own <clears throat> very unique personalities and habits based around <laughs> what time period they come from and who they were before. And it's hilarious and wonderful. I realized when we were making this list that a lot of my favorite monster recreations and reimaginings are pretty humorous and like more comedy versus horror, Hmm. which is, I think, maybe a problem that I have with them recreating, like rebooting the whole universe in this very serious action-y way is that I've kind of come to think of these these characters as being a little more lighthearted. That kind of makes sense. Like, a lot of them have been remade so many times that you kind of have to lean toward comedy at some point. Like, Yeah, and they also have been, like, rebranded to appeal to kids so many times. Yeah. um, Where a lot of my favorite things are, like, a Scooby-Doo movie called The Reluctant Werewolf (laughs) or Monster Squad, um, where it is kind of remade in this kind of, like, goofy and kind of making fun of the tropes and the characters and, like... Oh, of course they can't deal with garlic. Isn't that funny? They can't have garlic bread. Ha ha ha. Kind of goofs. I love the Grandpa Dracula in Hotel Transylvania, the kids series. Mm-hmm. Like, the Grandpa Dracula is really upset because his his vampire daughter marries a human, and he really wants his grandkid to be a vampire. That's funny. <laughs> it's this whole, like, weird family drama. Even like with the Munsters or the Adams family to kind of make these things a little less scary. It's hard to backtrack back into scary now. Yeah, I could see that. I think the vampire is definitely the monster that's made l- less often than the rest into a humorous, silly thing. Mm-hmm. That's why what we do in the shadows is so great because we haven't really seen that kind of that level of silliness in vampires. That makes sense. Besides Blackula. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. One other one that I want to mention here is I Am Legend as a vampire story. The book and all of the movies. I especially, Except for the Will Smith one. Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking of like Vincent Price. Yeah. But I like this version of vampire, like interacting with the humans still. Like his family being outside his door, being like, come out, come and join us. Yeah, that's one thing I've always loved about vampires is they, they've always held that sense of intelligence. Whereas a Mm -hmm. lot of other monsters are just, you know, kind of brainless monsters. And they are still very human. Yeah. When you're kind of like, if you're a vampire and you're trying to like sell it to another, to a person like, yeah, you should become a vampire. You can just live forever and be super strong. And like you get, you still get to be a person. Yeah. You have all this time to like learn languages and learn about history. (laughs) Acquire all this wealth and stuff versus something like a werewolf where it's a little more of a burden. Yeah. 
We actually had quite a few input from our listeners about the vampires. Oh, really? Yeah, some several people mentioned favorite vampires from this. One of them was Patrick LaRose, who is on our anniversary issue. And he mentioned the I Am Legend vampires that cool. he really loves. He said something about being alone in the post-apocalypse, but your dead friends still come to your door at night to talk mm-hmm. to you. Yeah, it's terrifying. Like, can there possibly be a lonelier feeling than that? You know? Yep. Jeremy Hatchett mentioned the Blade movies and the Underworld movies. While they're silly, but he still likes them. Vampire is a good one, too, because it doesn't always have to be Dracula. Yeah, it's one of those uh, monsters that has really been expanded throughout whatever the universe it's in actually needs it to be. Mm-hmm. Our friends at the Witch Files podcast said Willem Dafoe as Max Shrek Count Orlock in Shadow of the Vampire was a genius performance. Seriously, he was incredible. <laughs> I didn't see that one. I actually Not just re- with that. rewatched it a few days ago in preparation for this, and I'm still, I'm just completely blown away how incredible he is. Walt Keegan, who's another contributor at Mega Nerd Media, said, while 1992's Dracula won't win awards for Keanu or Winona, Oldman's Drac was great, and the costume design by Aiko Ishioka makes it worth watching. Yeah, the costume ran that was incredible. I know, I can. I always think of, like, Gary Oldman in that big collar. Yeah. No, oh, it's beautiful. I feel like the mummy is very near and dear to my heart as somebody who fell in love with Egypt in third grade, like like a lot of us did. And for many years, I, I was convinced that I was going to become an Egyptologist when I grew up. Nice. But then when I was thinking about how much I love the mummy, but then trying to think of versions of mummies in media and stuff, I couldn't really come up with too many. The big one that I could think of was Bubba Hotep. Yeah. Starring... Everybody's favorite Bruce Campbell as Elvis <laughs> fighting a mummy. <laughs> Again, kind of comedy, not taking itself too seriously. But I thought that that was a, f- a very fun and silly and campy version of the mummy story. Other versions of the mummy that came to my mind was the that one episode of Courage the Cowardly Dog. Return the slab. Return the slab. I miss that show. Or it was wonderful. My curse. <laughs> Just that that like kind of paper doll looking artwork of the mummy or of Ramses is just like burned into my head of like that is what a mummy looks like yeah like if you watched courage the cowardly dog back when it was on there's no way you're forgetting that oh yeah like that particular episode the song even gets stuck in my head years later sometimes man and gods (laughs) and then that also reminded me of this tv show that was on i want to say like the wb or like wb kids or whatever called tuttenstein which i love it was about King Tut coming back to life, and he becomes friends with this young black girl, and her cat can talk and is like inhabited by the spirit of Anubis, kind of. But then they also like go to the underworld together and battle monsters. And King Tut is like this shitty little kid, like teenager boy, and she's this like super smart girl who like knows everything about Egypt. And it's just so much fun that it, I remember <laughs> that it ridiculous. existed. 
Yeah, and it's so good. <laughs> so now I need to find it again. I'm sorry, I never saw that. That sounds amazing. Tottenstein, which I guess kind of works with Frankenstein, which we're going to get into here in a bit. I think those are probably my favorite versions of a mummy. But then, of course, Melissa, we got to talk about the mummy with Brendan Fraser. <laughs> <laughs> Admittedly, I had a hard time coming up with any for this category. The weird thing is I've always been almost obsessed with ancient Egyptian mythology and stories of ancient Egypt. And I love watching documentaries about real discoveries mm -hmm. of mummies and Egyptian Me artifacts. Too. But I always found mummies as a horror trope to be not scary at all. I'm right there with you. I kind of feel like, oh, I could just like yank on a bandage and everybody's <laughs> come apart, you know? But yeah, most of the mummy things have been reinterpreted in a very silly, goofy way. Which brings us back to, yeah, our uh, 1999 The Mummy with Brendan Fraser which is a ridiculous and silly movie, but I found that one really enjoyable. And I don't care what anybody says, I think Brendan Fraser is delightful. Yeah. He is delightful. I'm not going to say he's a great actor, but he's delightful. <laughs> There's an entire subreddit about what is Brendan Fraser up to right now. Oh, no. I'm guessing Parents. not a lot. <laughs> not a lot. Not a lot. <laughs> but man, his episode of Scrubs was so good. <laughs> <laughs> The only thing that I could really come up with, and it's really kind of questionable, is Ra's al Ghul from the Batman universe, because he kind of dies and is resurrected. He's the only mummy iteration I could think of where the mummy actually kind of comes back, or the person actually kind of comes back intelligent uh -huh. and, you know, completely in control of themselves. The whole Lazarus pit thing is kind of questionable in terms of whether that's a, a mummy or not. And in the Batman universe, they kind of pull a lot of Egyptian references into Ra's al Ghul's backstory and his, I mean, obviously not in the Christopher Nolan movies, but mm -hmm. into his backstory and his general aesthetic and all that. But I don't know. It's kind of mummy-ish. I think of it when I think of mummies. There we go. He's an Egyptian ninja master. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, to be honest, I was very excited to start brainstorming for this section, but then once I th started thinking, I started kind of drawing a blank. Yeah, it's it's not something that gets uh done a whole lot, is it? Which mm -hmm. is makes it even more sad that the movie that came out this month is such a flop. Yeah, big time. I I saw the trailer for that and I thought it looked pretty scary. Like, oh, that mummy looks pretty scary. Like, yeah. I'd like to see a mummy that actually scares me a little bit, but from what I hear, it's not very scary. <laughs> yeah, I remember having that same thought. I was like, okay, cool, a mummy movie I can get behind, and you know, maybe something that will actually scare me. I'm going to avoid it. I think they went too heavy with the action. Just go back and watch Hotel Transylvania. Yeah. There we go. I think any disappointment you have in any of these monsters on the list, you can just go back and watch the kids' movies Hotel Transylvania 1 and 2, and... <laughs> Have fun because they all are ridiculous and silly and they do cute little dances. So, yeah, there you go. That works. <laughs> okay, well, ready to move on to the next one? Let's go for it. Okay, Melissa, would you like to talk about Frankenstein's monster? Sure, I'll talk about Not it. Not to be confused with Dr. Frankenstein. <laughs> <laughs> Just quick rundown in case you live under a rock and you don't know who Frankenstein is. Frankenstein's monster, who is sometimes incorrectly referred to as Frankenstein is a fictional character who first appeared in Mary Shelley's 1818 novel Frankenstein, or the modern Prometheus. The reason I say incorrectly referred to, if you don't know also, is Victor Frankenstein is actually the name of his creator, who's the crazy doctor scientist who decides to patch him together 
using magical chemistry and alchemy and make a person, a giant person. Shelley's original interpretation of Frankenstein was while he was hideous and ugly and gigantic, he was also sensitive and emotional. Um, and he attempts to fit into society, but he's shunned, causes him to seek revenge against his creator because he does not understand why he was created and left to this cruel world where he's not accepted. I find that idea of Frankenstein's monster to be really, really intriguing and complex. But Frankenstein has been redone so many times and the story of Frankenstein's monster has been redone so many times and in so many different ways that it also sort of like opens up a plethora of <laughs> of garbage. Um, yeah, like different garbage, but also like things like I kind of love the idea of like twisting the story a little bit and thinking about it in a different aspect. Mm-hmm. So this was one monster that I didn't mind taking over for this episode because I thought I both love the classic interpretation of him and I also love like the weird twisted ways that people have taken a lot of liberty with his story. Just quickly, uh, a couple of my top favorites were a comic book series from Steve Niles and Damian Worm called Monster and Mad Men. And this is definitely one of those stories that takes a lot of liberties. The idea of this story is that Frankenstein's monster wanders out on his own, escapes his creator, decides to try to go out into the world, and he meets up with Jack the Ripper. And Jack the Ripper takes advantage of his need to be loved and accepted And he manipulates the monster to do his evil deeds and to help him with his murders. Because he he basically tries to, you know, convince him that his place in the world is is by helping him with his work. And tries to make him feel like he's been accepted. It sounds weird and silly, but it's not silly. It actually comes off really, really great. And I love that Steve Niles maintains the emotional weight of Frankenstein's monster in the story. Very cool. Yeah, he's very much like the Frankenstein, Shelley's Frankenstein, so I love that. I'm also going to throw one out here that a lot of people are probably going to disagree with me on, but I really enjoyed it. It's a movie called Victor Frankenstein from 2015, and it stars Daniel Radcliffe, otherwise known as Harry Potter, (laughs) and James (laughs) McAvoy. And this one is an interesting twist as well. This one takes it is actually told from Igor's perspective, who in many stories is the kind of hunchbacked, shy, sort of reclusive assistant of Dr. Frankenstein. I feel like he's also kind of used as, like, comic relief sometimes. He is. He's kind of, bumbling. It's true, and that's what I love about this story, besides the fact that I think these two stars do an excellent job. I think that they are, both of them are kind of underrated actors a lot now. But the story is of uh, Victor Frankenstein, who discovers Igor in a circus he's a hunchback and he's sort of being abused and shown off as like a freak in a circus and he rescues him and cleans him up and teaches him how to be a person and helps him be more physically adept and able to blend in in society Hmm. culture cultures him and brings him in essentially brings him in as uh his assistant but Igor in this story is incredibly intelligent and brings a extremely viable, like, necessary part to Frankenstein's ability to create the monster. Hmm. So Frankenstein is, you know, is using him for what he needs from him, too. So it's a very complex story about these two characters who I feel like their relationship isn't ever really touched on in the story yeah. of Frankenstein. That's interesting. So, I I haven't seen this, but 
That sounds interesting. It's, I thought it was great. I was impressed by it. I didn't expect go into it expecting anything fantastic, but I was surprised by that. Nice. Sierra, you have a couple things in here, but <laughs> you have something like bolded in here. So yeah. who did you want to talk about the most? Well, I think that Frankenstein in Monster Squad is my... When I picture Frankenstein's monster, I see Karloff and then I see the Frankenstein from Monster Squad. And I think that it encapsulates the personality of like, I just want to be friends with you guys and like that kind of gentle giant feel versus I am a monster. Yeah. Thinking of Frankenstein's monster is more of a friend than a foe. So definitely Monster Squad, which all of these monsters are in Monster Squad and I love them <laughs> all in, in it. So it works for all of all of them, but specifically for Frankenstein's monster. And then I also wanted to talk about Sally from The Nightmare Before Christmas. <laughs> I, you know, she totally skipped my mind in this category. I literally just thought of her because I was thinking of Dr. Finkelstein mm-hmm. as Dr. Frankenstein, but it never even made made the connection in my head until just now of like, Sally is totally a Frankenstein's monster and she's pieced together and she doesn't feel like she belongs anywhere and she doesn't feel lovable and she feels disconnected from everybody, but she's still very like sensitive and thoughtful and she's um, looking for a friend. And yeah, she just wants she, love. She's rebelling against her creator. Yep, yeah, big time. So yeah, Sally is totally one of my favorites. Absolutely. I love her. And then another comedy one, Weird Science. I love from Weird the Science. 80s. <laughs> with that really good Oingo Boingo theme. <laughs> I also, wow, I didn't realize I really like female interpretations of Frankenstein's monster and like Bride of Frankenstein. But yeah. The, the teenage boy is creating a woman, the perfect woman, out of a, a Barbie doll and, and some science and computer code and electricity. And then she all of She was no their... clumsy Frankenstein monster, though. No, she yeah. really wasn't. <laughs> it was kind of magic, more magic than science, probably. But yeah, that movie is just really fun. I'm going to shimmy on in here. I actually didn't put my favorite one in here because I figured we would talk about it by now. I'm a little ashamed we haven't. But Penny Dreadful. Mm-hmm. Frankenstein's monster in Penny Dreadful is really the one that forced me to connect with Frankenstein being that the the gentle giant that really is looking for acceptance. Like, I don't know why it's not something I really connected with. You know, it's one of those things that you understand intellectually, but maybe you don't, like, feel it, you know? But that particular character in Penny Dreadful, like, really made me understand Frankenstein's monster's plight there. So that 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 holds a soft spot for me. That's a that's a tough one. I mean, Verna Croft is yeah, she wants to be accepted. And she had a hard life and all that, but she's also kinda that's kinda evil. <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking more what They definitely I, dragged her into the monster territory towards the end of that show. Yeah. I'm thinking more uh Oh, are you thinking of the first monster? Yeah. Caliban or John Clare? John Clare. Yeah, he didn't he didn't actually have a name. Like uh Dr. Frankenstein never gave him a name, but he adopted the name John Clare. Yeah, that's that's the one that really kinda seemed tragic to me. I forgot about him. Yeah, he was really a good character. Yeah. I also really love that interpretation of Dr. Frankenstein. Yeah. That was actually a much more interesting interpretation of Dr. Frankenstein than most any I'd ever seen. And I actually really like the whole crazy scientist thing so i don't know why uh penny dreadful's interpretation was more interesting to me but maybe because he was a very flawed character 
Yeah, he he was definitely searching for something too and was damaged. We can move on after this, but we just very briefly I have to mention Dr. Frankenfurter, who I think is one mm-hmm. of the most fun and amazing Frankensteins ever. <laughs> and Rocky. Yeah. <laughs> Which is, I guess if you think about it, the weird science version is sort of closer to Dr. Frankenfurter mm-hmm. as an interpretation than it is Dr. Frankenstein, because those boys were out to make themselves a sex toy. Let's be honest. <laughs> they were. Yeah, they true. absolutely were. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. That's what I've got for Frankenstein. Well, we can jump into a related category, the mad scientist. There are so many of those. Yeah, there's a lot. And within the original Universal movie mm-hmm. monsters, I think it encompasses Dr. Frankenstein, also the Invisible Man and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. So that's one where there's a lot of different angles from the start. And I was looking up Wikipedia lists to kind of get get my brain going when I was writing these notes. And there's a, a Wikipedia list of fictional scientists and engineers that are like mad scientists and that list is so much fun to go through it really (laughs) is it has it has like dilbert on there (laughs) and princess bubblegum (laughs) she's totally a mad scientist (laughs) yeah like all of the every possible argument you could make for a mad scientist is included on this list some things that I thought of for this. Jeff Lemire has a beautiful graphic novel called The Nobody, which is pretty much just a novelization of The Invisible Man, which is amazing and beautiful. I was impressed that you listed a Jeff Lemire book that I haven't read yet. (gasps) And I have something new to read. (laughs) Yay! I know a comic book that Melissa doesn't know. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm reading at least three books by him right now at the same time. So how did I miss that? He's, He's great. And then also... Bruce Banner and the Hulk as a a superhero interpretation of Jekyll Hyde. And then, of course, everyone's favorite mad scientist, Rick Sanchez from Rick and Morty, (laughs) which I put on the list mostly just as a way to keep talking about it until there's more of season three that I can get excited about. I've seen only a couple episodes of uh, Rick and Morty. I feel like that would be your favorite show. (laughs) I keep being told that, and I really need to just, like, set aside some time and get into it. I just haven't gotten there yet. (laughs) So one thing I noticed when I was trying to come up with options for this was that there's a hell of a lot of Batman villains that kind of Mm -hmm. circle around the whole mad scientist thing. Like, the (laughs) Scarecrow, Mr. Freeze, like, even kind of Poison Ivy a little bit with her crazy Mm -hmm. plant shit. The Green Goblin yeah yeah well i mean that's that's spider-man but still like in that universe like it's crazy that so there are so many interpretations of the mad scientist in these superhero kind of universes it makes sense because it's like science and sci-fi and like you're using science to accidentally turn yourself into a monster and then you're like kind of using your flaws and your yeah your vices kind of become what makes you into the monster yeah, it makes like you into the villain. Keeping that human aspect while throwing in the monstrous villain side. Mm-hmm. Yeah, makes sense. And it's also an easy superhero villain idea because they they are like a worthy foe for the superheroes, but then because they're still human and because these like vices made them into the evil being that they are, they still have flaws that can be exploited. And they still have that relatable quirk or flaw there that the audience can get excited about in some way. 
And mad scientists are generally just an easy character to throw out there for comic book mm-hmm. villains. You know, it's like, oh, well, he just made that thing because he's a crazy he's scientist. He's super smart. He's a genius. Yeah. <laughs> and he he's has so magical things to mix together that we don't understand because he's super smart. <laughs> <laughs> like the ultimate duex machina. <laughs> mm-hmm. Melissa, you had the fly on here. Yeah. Um, well, Jackie, I was so ready to argue with you about GLaDOS. Oh, I actually put her on here specifically to argue about her. So let's go ahead. I was and, waiting. And I was that. waiting for that. I think that's just an excuse for you to talk about Glados some more, which I'm it okay is. with. It's but totally. But we see through you. It, it, like you're, you're absolutely right. Um, <laughs> no, I was looking through that list of uh, fictional scientists and engineers, and so I'm like, Glados. Why is she on here? And then I thought about it. I'm like, well, she does sit there and make a shitload of turrets and uh, you know, crazy dangerous traps and things to try to kill the uh, the main character shell and all that so i guess kind of she is her own little crazy scientist engineer in her own way more engineer than scientist i'd say but yeah we're stretching it a little bit we're stretching it's, it it's a stretch yeah it's totally a stretch. i don't know if you can consider a computer a mad scientist <laughs> well she was a, <laughs> a human before she was a computer so but yeah mostly i just the Found it really entertaining that she was on the list. <laughs> yeah, I said argue, but that's really as much as I'm going to argue because I love the portal too. So <laughs> I think we can't talk about Mad Scientist without talking about the Fly remake, the 1986 version, because Seth Brundle is like one of the most identifiable and infamous versions of the Mad Scientist. And I think watching the transformation from this, you know, nice, likable kind of somewhat goofy guy into the fly and watching his like obsession with the science around that and with his inventions and with his discoveries, his obsession just kind of ate at him and took over Mm -hmm. even as his body changed physically into something new. To me, it has, is always standing as like one of the best interpretations of the mad scientist, not to mention the amazing physical effects. Yeah. Of that film. I would agree there. Sierra, you're the only one that has something for Swamp Monster. Yeah, so we <laughs> we all tried to come up with Creature from the Black Lagoon inspired monsters. The only one that really super stuck out to me was Ape Sapien from Hellboy, which I think that maybe the reason why there aren't so many Creature from the Black Lagoon things is that maybe you don't get too much of his personality in the original movies. Like, that would make sense. So there's not really a real trait to anchor to. Yeah, like he's kind of humanoid, but he doesn't have any kind of like compassion or any like real reason to be attacking people besides just being a monster. And so besides looking hella cool, there's not too much more that people are like inspired by, I guess. That makes sense. Yeah. But then we were also kind of talking about the creature from the Black Lagoon kind of got people afraid of water and lakes and things like that then it could maybe be you know a stretch kind of be an inspiration for things like jaws or lake placid or something like that where it is like a scary monster in the water gonna get you i could see that i feel like a lot of swamp monsters sort of end up being you know either an alien or the witch that lives in the swamp Mm-hmm, definitely. Or something other than a monster. <laughs> kind of always ends up being like they think there's a swamp monster, but then 
Although I think in the new reiteration of the X-Files, there was an episode with an actual swamp monster. Yeah. Yeah, that was the one with Camille Nanjiani. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But he did end up being, like, humanoid and talking to mm-hmm. them and stuff. So maybe it's that we don't really recognize a whole lot of the swamp monsters when they are evolved into something that actually is interesting. Yeah, Beyond maybe. just how it looks. <laughs> <laughs> Swamp monster is really just a mutant. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. The swamp monster comes up in Stephen King's It at one point. With he's spoiler, spoiler alerts. Pennywise transforms into the swamp monster, or the the Gill Man, quote unquote, the creature from the Black Lagoon, to kill Eddie. I don't remember that at all. <laughs> I I remember being real sad for Eddie. Yeah. He had a hard life. The other thing that I thought of was the fish people from Adventure Time. <laughs> Kind of a swamp creature. But yeah, there wasn't a ton here. Which is too bad because I think swamp creatures, when I picture them in my head, they look so freaking cool. Yeah. I wish I had more stories about them. The aesthetic is rad as hell, but yeah, it definitely needs more going on there. The aesthetic of the actual, like, original swamp monster creature from the Black Lagoon, I think, is still the best one. I think so too. And I, I was reading, I forget exactly who, but I think there was some crossover between folks who worked on that or like the company that worked on that and then folks who later went on to make the xenomorphs oh cool a while later down the road but i read that and i was like oh that makes a ton of sense yeah there was something particularly intense about that original creature from the black lagoon like the big fins on the head and kind of the big weird you know hands and he was intimidating there was something it was Mm -hmm. like silly looking but intimidating at the same time yeah. It looked like something that you wouldn't want to be touched by. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about werewolves. Yeah, let's talk about werewolves. This is one that I think we had the probably the most like feedback from listeners on too. Oh yeah? There was definitely several mentions of American Werewolf in London. Of course. Which is the one that's on my list is the top one that you have to talk about. I think, again, both because of physical effects and I think because that iteration of the werewolf is sort of like... This is a nice guy who's just in the wrong place at the wrong time. It's a very classic idea, you know, like the the werewolf wakes up in the morning, doesn't remember anything, he's always naked. Mm-hmm. But American Werewolf in London, like, that guy was really likable. And he really, you could, they kind of, like, brought you through the kind of emotional drain, too, of a person becoming a werewolf and, you know, what happens to his relationships and his life and kind of how everything crumbles and falls apart when he realizes. And that werewolf was scary as hell. And I don't usually find werewolves very scary. So in that same vein, one of my favorites is uh, the British version of uh, being human. George, I don't know if you guys have seen that, but George is like such a goofy, lovable character, like this total dorky kid that gets the, the werewolf curse. And, you know, he can't control himself. And he's just, he's such a pleasure to watch him being so silly and ridiculous as a human and then turn around and be, like, kind of terrifying as a wolf. (laughs) I love it. One of the most recent werewolf things that I've super loved is one of the earlier episodes of Lore. I think it's maybe, like, episode three. There's a werewolf episode called The Beast Within. And I think that that episode and Aaron Mankey telling the stories of these people who were accused of being werewolves really encapsulated what my kind of classic idea of what a werewolf is, of like this kind of old 
Victorian, but also like uh, just create the like early kind of creation of the United States, like kind of era and like people being accused of being a werewolf and like in this small farming community and like kind of like a, a witch hunt kind of vibe to it. So that was one thing that immediately popped into my head when I was thinking about werewolves. And then one thing that just came to me moments ago, my favorite like kind of goofy guy who is also a wolf is the wolf from 10th Kingdom. Which I don't know if you guys have seen the 10th Kingdom. No. no. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> it's a TV miniseries about this girl and her father who fall into this other dimension with nine kingdoms that are all of the classic story, like fairy tales. So she falls in love with a, a wolf who becomes a werewolf and there's like a Rapunzel, a Rapunzel aspect. There's Cinderella. It's all of the grim fairy tales and it's very like kind of campy and goofy and like 90s but then also just so much fun to watch and it's like nine hours long so i've definitely made all of my friends watch it like continuously all day (laughs) and it's a very fun event that sounds fun (laughs) it's so good that's one where like the wolf is is this very charming and misunderstood kind of person who doesn't want to be doing the things that he's doing, but, and is also like trying to control it, but like can't, and who is just like kind of very human in the way of like he's made mistakes and he's trying to do better and like take steps to prevent hurting anybody when there's a full moon and has like kind of been put upon because he's a wolf and like isn't accepted and everybody just assumes that he's a murderer and this evil person um because he's a wolf but really he's this like nice person it's so good he's so good (laughs) also another comedy and fun one is teen wolf yep (laughs) teen wolf we don't need to talk about that one too much but that one's a fun one Speaking of the comedy werewolf vibes, what the first thing that came to mind when I looked at the werewolf thing was all the ridiculous werewolf songs that end up in like cartoons and sitcoms and shit, like Werewolf Bar Mitzvah from Thirty Rock, mm-hmm. <laughs> which I absolutely love. Scary boys becoming men, men becoming wolves, <laughs> or I love you so much it's scary from Bob's Burgers, where that mm-hmm. uh, like boy band makes a freaking um, music video, and you get to see the whole stupid thing, and they're werewolves chasing this girl around. I don't know why I love it so much, but it seems like werewolves kind of lend themselves to kind of these ridiculous iterations sometimes, and I just absolutely love it. Every single time I see one of these, I go kind of crazy for it. It's also funny to use werewolves as a metaphor for, like, puberty. Like, you just become hairy and you have mood swings and you can't control it you're not yourself it makes sense honestly yeah it's a very difficult time in everyone's life when they become a werewolf werewolves not swearwolves <laughs> kind of related to that too I just wanted to ask you guys briefly I think that in general the werewolf works better than the wolfman in regards to horror but I'm interested how you guys feel about that. Like, which one works better for horror? Hmm. How would you define Wolfman versus Werewolf? Like, Wolfman is like like the teen wolf sort of. It's a person walking around with a lot of hair and like doggy mm-hmm. ears and functioning very much as a human okay, being, yeah. but howling, you know, and kind of doing dog behaviors. And Werewolf is the person who transforms into a wolf yeah. and back into a human. I would say werewolf works better for horror because it's it's always 
Well, it seems like it's always that situation where they can't control what they're actually doing. So it has mm-hmm. that extra element of chaos to it that really works great for horror. The only time when the Wolfman really screams horror to me is if it's related to people actually having that condition that makes them completely covered in hair, which I can't think of the name of right this second. And then like being put into like a sideshow kind of thing and then it becomes like a carnival freak show kind of story. Yeah. If we end up having time to move on to something after this, I just want to ask you guys really quickly because we've kind of mentioned Penny Dreadful briefly a couple times. But I think it's the ultimate in, like, modern iterations of all of these creatures. Mm -hmm. And they Mm -hmm. managed to work them all in. So I'm just curious. I think that my personal favorite modern version of the creatures from Penny Dreadful is probably the werewolf in that. Let me see. What was his name? Ethan Chandler. Um, Oh, yeah. I thought that that was an amazing version of a werewolf. And I love the brutality of that werewolf. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious what, if you guys had to name like one favorite monster from Penny Dreadful that you think that they did the best job modernizing, which one would you choose? That's a really good question. I should admit now, I haven't seen all of Penny Dreadful. How dare you? <laughs> I know. <laughs> I'm a monster. I am the true monster. <laughs> Zero is the monster. Uh, I actually think The Bride of Frankenstein was one of my favorites. Lily was, she was very layered and very well done, I think. It, it came across very well. So, Sierra, you don't, you have, have you not seen enough of them to, like, choose a favorite? Probably not. I feel like it would be Frankenstein, Dr. Frankenstein and the first monster, but I also feel like I haven't seen enough of it to make an opinion. Huh. Well, we'll come back to that after you have. Well, we're probably just not going to record any more episodes with Sierra until she watches Penny Dreadful. Yeah, somebody has some homework to do. You're not who we thought we, you were, Sierra. I'm sorry. I feel like I don't even know you. <laughs> no, I like the vampires, too, in that I thought it was really cool, the idea of the vampires kind of being able to, like, camouflage themselves. Yeah. That's something I've never seen before. <laughs> the way the witches camouflage themselves, too, was super creepy and yeah. awesome. The witches yeah. were honestly terrifying. <laughs> they were kind of the same thing, weren't they? Like the witch they were witches and vampires? Well, there were the witches and the vampires were kind of separate. Dracula was like a specific guy at the I don't want to ruin it for Sierra here. Yeah. yeah. Spoilers. <laughs> and then That's the witches right. were was that uh coven that was coming out yeah, yeah. yeah. I th- it was the witches I was thinking of. For some reason I thought of them as vampires because they had that weird they have that weird look about them, yeah. Creepy, yeah, and they always looked, like, white and sickly and weird. Yeah, when they first showed up, I thought they were vampires until, yeah, you know, got a little deeper into it, but... Yeah, they're terrifying. I like They were them. definitely witches who don't go out in the sun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they're also witches that don't fuck around. <laughs> <laughs> and can blend into your wallpaper. Yeah. Well, before we wrap up, I want to mention... There's currently another reboot of classic movie monsters happening right now that Warner Brothers is doing called the Monsterverse, just including their Godzilla and King Kong. Interesting. So it started with Godzilla in 2014 and then came out with Kong Skull Island earlier this year. And then coming up next, there will be another Godzilla movie and then Godzilla versus Kong in 2020. Wow. And what I think is interesting to compare this to 
the new mummy movie that just came out and kind of what our anticipations of for these other recreations that they are planning on doing as being like cheesy and over actiony and flashy and not really getting to the heart of the characters these Godzilla and King Kong movies have been doing really well. They've both gotten around 75% on Rotten Tomatoes. And I feel like okay. everybody kind of agrees that they aren't terrible. So I think maybe maybe it's just that these really giant monsters lend themselves better to being kind of the, a more modern take on it. I'm not sure. I want to kind of ask you guys what you guys think about that. It seems like the big giant monsters, at least like in more recent iterations of them, kind of lend themselves to be focused on the human drama that's experiencing mm. the monster, mm-hmm. which seems to be a really relatable thing for an audience. Like, because you you kind of immediately put yourself in those shoes, like, oh shit, what would I do if suddenly there was a gigantic monster towering over the city and everything was going crazy? That and special effects definitely lend themselves to, like, disasters. Yeah, absolutely. If there's anything that the movie industry has had a lot of experience really building up credentials in the past few decades, it's disaster effects, for sure. Mm -hmm. You guys brought up in our notes, like, Pacific Rim and the Cloverfield movies. Definitely, like, really good modern monster movies. I love those kaiju Mm-hmm. Yeah, they they looked really cool. But it's not the kind of thing where you're never going to hear like from the monster side of things. So that I think the fact that it really um focuses on the human drama reels mm-hmm. you in. Yeah. And it, it those two as the specific examples I think is interesting because Pacific Rim is about like, oh my god, this looks so cool. And then Cloverfield is about like not even seeing the monsters. It's about like the storytelling and how the camera is telling the story in the first one and like these people stuck in a bunker in the second one. Yeah. So I think there is maybe hope for modern monster movies, but hopefully this new dark universe that Universal is doing kind of picks up on these cues and and doesn't just make a bunch of garbage. I feel like you need to say that more dramatically. Dark universe. Dark universe. <laughs> it's so dark. Dark. <laughs> well, who knows? Hopefully it'll come out awesome. I mean, mm-hmm. that's all we can really do is hope. <laughs> yeah. And, I mean, Bride of Frankenstein on Valentine's Day, that's that's a good idea. Yeah. And that a creature from the Black Lagoon. That could be really cool. So. Yeah. I would like to wrap this up by mentioning one of my all-time favorite giant monsters. What's that? It is a Marvel Universe villain called Fin Fang Foom, who is an (laughs) alien dragon creature. (laughs) Space dragon. Um, Specifically, I love the version of him from a, a series called Next Wave, which is essentially a parody of superhero stories. And this Fin Fang Foom shows up in his purple underpants and he tries to like <laughs> stuff people into his underwear. <laughs> yeah, he's fabulous. And he cries. Nice. <laughs> See, that's a sensitive monster. Yeah. Very sensitive monster. <laughs> Wonderful. I need to research some Fin Fang Foom now. <laughs> yeah, you guys would love it. Yeah, I think so. Space dragons. How can you beat space dragons? (laughs) With underpants. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) 
Sirens of Scream is a member of the MegaNerd Media family. You can visit MegaNerdMedia.com for geek-related columns, reviews, interviews, and videos, and you especially should if you like our stuff because there's a lot of crossover. (laughs) (laughs) And if you want to talk to us, you can reach us at SOS at MegaNerdMedia.com and at Sirens of Scream on Twitter and Facebook and Tumblr. I feel like I've been lacking on the Tumblr recently because I've been kind of busy. But I'm still very <laughs> proud of my work on there. <laughs> and you can find me at Sierra Hauk online. And what about you guys? I am Jackie the Robot on Twitter and Instagram. And I'm Lissa Punch on Twitter and Instagram. Awesome. And we'll be back next two weeks. Next episode. Yeah. <laughs> our next episode is actually really exciting. Uh, we haven't mentioned what our next episode is going to be in a while. But this particular yep. one... <laughs> A personal friend of mine, June Gregory, is going to come on and tell us some horror history facts, as in, like, actual historical things that have happened that inspired horror tropes today. So we're all very, very, very excited. I'm so excited. Yeah. That's so my jam. (laughs) Awesome. So we will see y'all then. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. men, men, wolves, wolves. Look up at the skies. It's a full moon on the Sabbath. This is scary. Break it down. I was working late on my half Torah when I heard a knock on my bedroom door. I opened it up and to my surprise, there was a werewolf standing there with glowing gold eyes. He said, Tomorrow, my son, you will be a man. But tonight's the time to join the Wolfen clan. Tomorrow, you will stand at the Beamer and pray. But tonight, let's gaze at the Okay, it's over. That's a wrap. The next day, what happened? The Toma didn't teach. I got up in front of everyone to give my little speech. My teeth turned into fangs and my nails into claws. And I nearly dropped the Torah when my hands turned into paws. I growled and I roared and my rabbi did as well. It was a fucking werewolf zoo at Temple Beth Emanuel. Hey man, where'd you learn all these Jewish words? My manager, Harvey Lemmings. Werewolf puppets first. Scary boys becoming men, men becoming wolves. I just don't think this the idea of the song can sustain itself for that long. It doesn't, it seems a little sweaty now. So, this whole premise is sweaty. We had a reception at the Lunch Run Country Club. They served a real nice brisket and an eight foot party sub. I danced with my cousins, I got money from my folks. We had a lot of fun making circumcision jokes. Then I remembered the premise of my song. I was at a nice reception, but the werewolf part was gone. So we pulled ourselves together and we're wolfmen again. Just in time for Monster Fight to begin. Country club employees were brain sucking pack. We had all turned into zombies and were on the attack. So we fought the man some Dracula's and Frankenstein's too. But you gotta love our mitzvah even if you're not an old. They won't fight mitzvahs. Be scary. Boys becoming men, men becoming wolves. They won't fight mitzvahs. Be hairy. Boys becoming men, men becoming wolves. I don't like this. I don't like this. This is scary.
to werewolves and stuff, you know? 